Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. The Chinese have a saying, may you live in uninteresting times. There's wisdom in that. Imagine if George R.R. R. Martin had set his Song of Ice and Fire novels during the long piece of Aegon the Conqueror, when everything was going swimmingly in Westeros. That wouldn't have made for much of a story. Peace is boring. War is interesting. Interesting times are dangerous and scary. There's a lot at stake. In fact, really interesting times are always, to some degree, apocalyptic. There's a sense that things are about to change drastically. Faced with major upheaval, the collective mind goes to extremes, imagining that it isn't just an era that's ending, but the world itself, that the fabric of reality is coming apart at the seams, and the stars are teetering in their celestial aries. And there's always the possibility that these dramatic imaginings are correct, Why wouldn't reality just come apart suddenly? That'd be super interesting, but you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. But however wise that Chinese saying may be, it's neither here nor there as far as we're concerned, because we happen to live in very interesting times indeed, and there's nothing we can do about it other than become interesting ourselves. Interesting times call for interesting people. And Jeremy D. Johnson, today's guest, is one of those. Jeremy's a writer, editor, and integral scholar who recently released a book entitled Seeing Through the World, Jean Gebser, and Integral Consciousness. Jeremy's also a friend, and it was a pleasure to have him on Weird Studies to talk about the German poet and philosopher whom he admires so much. According to Gebser, humanity is currently undergoing a major paradigm shift, a transition from what he called the perspectival a way of seeing and being that came to the fore in the Renaissance and defines modernity, and the aperspectival, an entirely new structure, the first stirrings of which can be felt in the art and poetry of the 20th century. We hope that this conversation will inspire you to take a look at this very interesting thinker, whose time, it appears, has arrived. But before we begin, a quick word on the Weird Studies Patreon. I'll cut right to the chase. For a limited time... Anyone signing up on our Patreon will receive a free consciousness upgrade, courtesy of Phil, Jeremy, and me. This applies even to the $1 tier. Sign up today, and you'll suddenly find yourself immersed in time's quintessence and alchemically transformed into a new, shiny, super interesting being. Need I say more? Enjoy the show. Let's start by talking about Gebser. How did you discover Jean Gebser's work and why did you take to it as you have? You know, I found him amongst a a constellation of these similar thinkers in my early 20s in undergrad. Like Teilhard de Chardin was uh, 
the, you know, the Jesuit philosopher, paleontologist, I found him. He was in uh, the Jesuit university that I was going to. There was like a stack of books on Tehard there. And then there was Ken Wilbur. And then there was mention of Gepser. And so I kind of found them all at the same time. Uh, but what clicked for me for Gepser was immediately on, on basically page one, he was talking about time. And time is this kind of presence. And that immediately hooked me. It was a strange way of discussing what Ken Wilber and these other integral thinkers were discussing about, you know, this integral mutation of consciousness, etc. But Gepser just had this meticulous way of describing it that had a kind of a poetic sense to it. And so I, I couldn't stop looking in that direction and that it was sort of an antidote to the kind of systemic looking, you know, here's the big picture, here are all the graphs and charts of how consciousness evolves through these stages. No, Gepser had a very kind of a poetic invocation of what that actually meant. And so each of his descriptions in terms of, you know, talking about the whole history of consciousness felt very concrete and, and tangible. And there was a felt sense to each articulation. And so that was about 10, 12 years ago, but uh, I couldn't, I hadn't stopped since I've been involved in the, the Gepser Society and um, going to these integral conferences and, and so on. Right. So what's the, uh, what has been Gebser's career in the English speaking world? So what's the big book of his that you're writing about? Uh, when was it translated into English? And has there been like kind of a, a consistent interest in Gebser or is there a kind of a I mean, from my perspective, as somebody who's really just coming to Gebser now, it seems to me that there's a kind of a Gebser moment right about now. But then again, it's also possible that I just think that because I'm just noticing more Gebser now that I know more about him. Yeah, I think implicitly, I think we're having a Gebser moment. I was just listening to your last episode on uh, pattern recognition and that whole opening discussion on time and how time is speeding up is a very kind of a Gebserian theme. And he was writing about this way before Rushkoff in 1949. So in some ways, the cultural phenomenology of the present is very Gebserian. Um, but in terms of his actual exposure in the English-speaking world, I don't think there's been too much of it. There's been a few waves, a few ripples. But the most popular book, and really the only translated book, is The Ever-Present Origin. And that was written in, in 49. And it was translated in the in the mid 80s by August McCunis. And uh, I believe they're out of Ohio State University. Um, so so they had um, basically a communications department that was really interested in the subject and translated the work and kind of came at it from that angle. And then on the other hand, around the same time, Ken Wilber and the transpersonal movement picked it up, too. And you have scholars like George Feuerstein, who knew Gebser, uh, writing about Gebser in the 80s. So I guess the 80s was really the last moment for Gebser. Right, right. I think uh, William Irwin Thompson references Gebser as well. Exactly. His yeah. books from the yeah. 80s. Yeah. In, um, coming into being and, I believe, uh, imaginary landscape. And, and Thompson really has a brilliant way of working with Gebser as well that I that I would recommend. Yeah. So, Yeah. And, uh, of course, there's an affinity between these thinkers, obviously. Uh, Wilbur... Thompson, Gebser, we could add more 
thinkers of the Théâtre de Chardin you mentioned. You know, we could even talk about Carl Jung in this way. I mean, going all the way back to Hegel and this type of like like big thinkers who are thinking the world as such, kind of like who who take a position where they are able to or make a claim to be able to kind of apprehend the whole human drama, right? Um, there's something kind of biblical about these thinkers. And they do it to varying degrees. I mean, Thompson is is kind of cautious or much more kind of, um, uh, he's kind of hedging his bets as he does this, but he is kind of building this kind of narrative. And so what is it that attracts you to this kind of thinking about this kind of civilizational thinking, this kind of like big picture thought? Do you think it has its place today? Like some people are kind of questioning the very validity of any move of that sort, but um, you very boldly put out a book that kind of goes that route. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's a place for it, um, especially today. I think there's a, a counter trend to the kind of deconstructive move that's been going on for the past few decades, especially as things are falling apart, just existentially, systemically, culturally. There's a lot of disintegrative feelings in the air. And I think thinkers that have these big picture visions of the world or, or uh, are generalists or polymaths in some sense are becoming more attractive again. It's kind of becoming more in vogue. I don't know if that's the case inside of academia, but I could say certainly, you know, as a kind of a popular literature, it certainly is, especially with folks talking about uh, you know, transformation of culture and how we need to rethink complex systems like Nora Bateson, for instance, and uh, they're calling it, you know, I don't know if you guys follow the Emerge podcast and, and sort of the emergence movement. There's all these different thinkers who have these kind of, again, more system approaches. They're kind of thinking about it in complex systems, but right. a lot of them are talking about, well, we need new myths. We need new kind of orientations to the world. And the only way I think to really access that and think about it is to, is to attempt to articulate it in these kind of big picture ways. But I think there's different right. ways to go about that. You know, you can go about it in a very kind of hyper-rationalist structured approach where, you know, the, the, there's a kind of a model that you're following. Or you can kind of go about it in what I'm arguing in the book in this sort of poetic sense or what, what Gebser or what William Irwin Thompson does where they're really trying to work with the imagination and, and trying to say that the imagination kind of underpins the way in which we we situate ourselves in the world ontologically the way we perceive time and space the way we experience ourselves there's this kind of imaginative faculty that's at work in that and so we have to really look at that um so for me anyway that's more appealing than again this hyper rationalist that has this model for everybody that just needs to be adapted to to move right. into this next phase of consciousness or culture or whatnot. I'm, I'm not very attracted to that style. And you get that a lot in, in this field too. So it's sort of, you have to navigate it kind of carefully. Mm -hmm. One of the things that is kind of interesting to me about the Gebser thought that I'm encountering for the first time in reading your book is there's a, there's a word for it and I'm not going to be able to pull it up without scrambling through my copy of your book. But an idea of encounter with an idea that is not just intellectual or, or, or perspectival, I suppose. Systasis. Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah. An encounter of an with an idea that 
has more to do with the intimate engagement with it, an embodiment of it, perhaps a, a way of dealing with an idea such that you are changed. You're not just instrumentalizing it. You're actually transformed in the encounter. That seems to be something that's important in this realm of thought. Am I right? I would say so. Yeah. I, I think that, um, the way Gebser approaches even studying, well, you mentioned perspectival and, and, and stasis. There's some terminology here that I, I don't know if we want to dive too deeply into the jargon of Gebser exactly, but we can kind of dance around it. The next question will be, I, I, I'd like to ask a question about Gebser specifically. We get more more into that, but uh, go on. Yeah, but to answer your question, Phil, Yes, I think it's really meant to be a way for you to engage about your own thinking, to sort of turn back that perspectival eye on yourself and on what thinking actually is as a sort of an embodied experience and how does it come about and how is the modern, the so-called modern who's standing in three-dimensional space, thinking about thought and philosophizing or intellectualizing different than somebody living, let's say, 2,000 years ago, who may have had a different orientation towards thinking itself, right? And just kind of really understand that. And by doing that, I think um, the idea is to dislodge yourself from, as, as McLuhan might say, right? You're not just swimming in the water, not aware of the water. You're actually begin to become aware of the water and how you're actually using it to develop sense-making. And so, you know, I think this is really important for Gebser. He doesn't have the word sense-making in, in ever-present origin or his writing, but I think that concept is, is uh, very central to his approach to studying this history of consciousness, to sort of the history of sense-making and perception and how our, our senses come together in certain ways. Um, and again, you know, William Irwin Thompson mentions this too, where he connects McLuhan with Gebser quite a bit in his writing in, in terms of these two scholars were looking at how McLuhan calls it our sense ratios are always transforming with the mediums that we use. And the world that shows up with that sense-making transformation becomes different, you know, over time through, let's say, a literate culture versus an oral culture, et cetera. And these are kind of gross generalities. When you actually read Gepser, it's really kind of a fascinating trudging through meticulous details about the history of language and the spatial metaphors of certain words that become important, let's say, in ancient Greece and, and how that relates to a particular structure, a particular sense of self. Uh, so I think that answers your, your question right. to some degree. So you've mentioned words like already like uh, perspectival, aperspectival. I don't think many of our listeners will know what these words mean in this particular context. So let's talk a little bit about the meat of what Gebser's saying here, like the really short form version. What does perspectival mean in Gebser's mo model of consciousness and history? A big part of this, and I've been thinking about different ways to, to sum this up without kind of going into, okay, here's the model and here's the steps and here's how we, we go through the, the superficial structural outline of the way Gebser describes it. But it, most of his work was interested in looking at the history of consciousness, the, the history of these transformations of sense-making. And perspectival, he posits or uses as, as a descriptive term in relation to what he says is the unperspectival and then the aperspectival. But the perspectival is something that we're actually all very familiar with, so it's a good place to start. And it's the sense of being in three-dimensional space, being an ego standing with as a subject looking at an object, that kind of Cartesian sense of self that we've 
really all kind of taken for granted as moderns and, and inhabit the world with. And so he doesn't really point this to Descartes, but he draws it back a little bit and says, you know, it was really the artist who developed what Descartes was working with eventually in thinking. It was the artist who was able to work with this new spatial consciousness and gain a sense of self as, you know, the, the self standing with the eye being the organ of perception, looking at the, the vanishing point. And um, it's that kind of three-dimensional space that sort of coalesces. And he goes and documents this in a very, very meticulous way, tracing it through. And, you know, most of his study is is European history and looking at the Mediterranean and ancient Greece, but it's this careful study of the history of consciousness through kind of this classical literature approach, looking at ancient myth and so on. And so there's this kind of coalescing of selfhood that takes place over a few thousand years. And with that comes this new perspectival self around the Renaissance period, which has this new, you guys mention this all the time with Charles Taylor, this buffered self that begins to develop and emerge and really kind of unleashes itself on the world around the Renaissance period. And Gebster's kind of ambiguous about this, though, because, you know, you could go back to ancient Greece and talk about how, you know, the Greeks clearly had a sense of proportion and spatiality, and they were the, the ones who were developing philosophy in the West and so on. He, he, he lends all that to them. He says, yes, yes, that's all true. But it's really in the Renaissance where this new spatial self at last, in, in some sense, is able to break free of this kind of closed membrane of myth, right, of Oceanus, of the, the god who encircles the world, and erupt into this new spatiality. You know, we have Copernicus and Galileo, and Gebser has these kind of very poetic quotes where he's just describing what's kind of going on in Western history, right around the, the, the period of the Renaissance and the scientific revolution, with uh, this explosion of lens makers and map makers and uh, the explosion of colonialism, this explosion of space, which liberates the ego into this new, this new dimensionality. But in doing so, it overturns this older mythical world, and, and we kind of lose a sense of connection with myth, right? We lose our embeddedness in it. So in terms of the history of consciousness, that's kind of a broad brush of how he is articulating this kind of literally emergence, right? Out of the submersion of myth, we wake up into this, this Cartesian self and gain this new spatial world, but we also lose a connection to the numinosity and the powers in those places. And and one more thing too, uh, you know, one of the interesting things for me anyway with Gepser is that he's he doesn't really claim that there's any kind of linearity in all of this. Like there may be this emergence of the self, but that doesn't mean the unperspectival world of myth is any less real. He he gives it equal ontological value in terms of the experience of being in the world for, let's say, mythical folk and believing in these myths. It's not really a believing in, it's a participating in. And so he, he's really good at kind of getting under a lot of the modernist suppositions about how, you know, we get what the world really is and it's really this spatial reality. And he's saying, no, 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 it's just one dimension of it. There are other aspects of it too that we've lost touch with. And then kind of foreshadowing now with the ape perspective, he's saying, the spatial world that the Renaissance has been so good at mastering and articulating is itself just one dimension, one aspect of reality, which is coming to an end, as he says, in the 20th century with the civilizational crisis. So that kind of pauses us kind of between these two outlooks. 
So I think we are beginning to touch on something that seems to be a kind of certainly at the heart of your book and in as much as your book is the first time I've really been encountering Gebser's thought. I'm going on the assumption that this is also a big issue in Gebser's studies generally, which is the question of how do these different states of consciousness, do we call them states of consciousness? Structures, yeah. Structures of consciousness. Um, the time in which these structures of consciousness manifest. On the one hand, it's possible to sort of think very much in terms of linear history. In fact, we just did it a moment ago in thinking about the development of um, new optical technologies in the early modern period. Or if we're thinking in McLuhan terms, what's the thing that really alters up sense ratios? Well, it's the printing press, the industrialization of literacy that makes human society much more visual, uh, much more oriented to the eye and to the separating and perspectivizing, isolating mode of selfhood that comes from that style of perception. But, you know, that's thinking in somewhat historicist terms. Like there are these events, the development of telescopes, the development of printing press, things that happen at particular pivotal moments where we can see the mass transformation of consciousness from one mode to another towards something that you refer to as a Cartesian self, right? The idea of the self as a figure standing out on a ground and a viewpoint from which all of creation is perceptible and analyzable as something at a discrete distance from the subject. Um, okay, so we can think of that as a historical event, a moment of the transformation of the Western self. But there also seems to be in Gebser this idea that the different structures of consciousness don't just follow one another in a kind of a lockstep. They don't necessarily manifest in linear order. And so I'm wondering, how do you reconcile the apparent contradiction between those two ideas? On the one hand, the idea that we can, a la Hegel, we can step back and have this grand vision of the full unfolding of human history in terms of successive moments of consciousness, and then at the same time, understand these different structures of consciousness as things that are somehow always available uh, and always and simultaneously available to the human subject. Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. That's something I, I've wrestled with articulating a bit too, because, you know, different camps in the kind of countercultural movements of the integral movement and uh, transpersonal movement, that there's this argument about, well, you know, how much should we lean into the linearity of the thing? And should we trust that there's this spatially upward thrust of consciousness that's moving in a certain direction? How much should we emphasize that? And so, for me, you know, there's certainly some degree of unfoldment that's happening, something that's already latent and present in consciousness that kind of manifests and expresses itself. But on the other hand, you know, the way in which Gebser writes about this and the way in which we actually live our lives, these are all kind of, even on a sort of an hour to hour day-to-day -day basis, the the mythical and, and the magical, we haven't really gone into specifics and what each one means exactly at the mental, the integral, the archaic, all of these structures are all overlapping and interrelated with each other, almost like an organism would be, kind of a multidimensional organism in which, you know, going into a 
even at an individual level, you know, deep sleep is kind of like for Gepser the archaic and dreaming is kind of this magic and mythic and waking up, of course, is this sort of waking perspectival self to some degree. So they're all kind of folding in and out of each other. And for Gepser too, here's the interesting sense of where, where time comes in. And it's this idea that there may be to some degree a linearity of history. On the other hand, the overall way in which everything is unfolding and interacting with one another is not necessarily linear, so that the future might be efficacious with the past, and the past might be present in, 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 in the present and in the future. So there's this kind of sense that you have to look at the whole unfolding all at once in a kind of a simultaneity and re- as the only real way to kind of grok the whole. That to see it as an unfolding in discrete stages of segmented time is only the approach from this perspectival mental self. That the actual the, the process that, that we can understand is what we mentioned before, that word cystasis. It's this sort of, I don't know, I only have poetic words for it. You know, a shimmering um, multidimensional organism that, in which time is kind of folded in past, present, and future co-effecting one another. And I don't know how to really explain that or describe that besides, you know, stating it that way. But Gebser at least seems to have this insight that time's quintessence is this wholeness and that the rational segmenting of, of history is insufficient to really kind of grok that. And that actually leaning too much on trying to grok time and history that way causes a lot of trouble and a lot of problems and might actually be part of the reason why we've been kind of undergoing this acceleration of history because we're trying to master time in that way. We're trying to master time in this linear instrumental sense as clock time, right? As segmented time. And for Gepser, this creates this sort of, it's interesting. It's almost like it's a dimension of reality, this time, which he associates with the integral and the mental and the perspectival he associates with space. And he's saying, well, time in its quintessence is this intensity that we can't fathom or grasp in a rational sense. It's multidimensional. There's past, present, and future. It's this intensity. And the more we attempt to master it with the instrumentality of modernity of the perspectival world, the more it's going to almost oversaturate us and accelerate us and break open and burst open the perspectival world in a very similar way that the mythical world was erupted through with this new spatial sense. So it's, so that we're kind of going along for a ride, but we've created it for ourselves because we're not taking this leap into this new sense of dimensionality. So that kind of gets into some interesting, interesting things he writes about with what he calls the integral, he says is time freedom. And I found that to be an interesting, very Dogen-esque koan. Akronon is what yes, he calls yeah, it, right? Yeah, Akronon, yeah. Yeah, which when I read that, it reminded me of uh, Nietzsche's idea of the untimely, mm. right? The untimely being not the eternal in a temporal sense, like time forever, but a kind of leaping out of time itself, and a leaping out of the... The, the ruts of a kind of clock time fixation, right? Like where you get stuck into this. So that to me kind of like aligns Gebser with other thinkers of his time, like Nietzsche, but certainly with Bergson, whose idea of time is very similar to Gebser's. The way Bergson describes duration, lived time, actual time, that is deeply subjective, inextricably subjective, because a subject is always 
assumed when you talk about time. Uh, his idea of time is very similar to what uh, maybe I'm reading into it, but what I perceive in Gebser's idea of the quintessence of time, time kind of like reclaimed for a subjective unfolding, for becoming. And, um, and so I'm really into that type of um, thinking about time because I do think that the spatialization of time that's happened in the modern era presents certain problems. One of the, my favorite parts of your book is where you talk about Akira, right? And Akira as a kind of planetary myth about our incapacity or about the challenge of grasping, grappling with and mastering this new form of time that we've unleashed. Like things are moving so fast and changing so fast and there is such power in the moment and we have access to such power that we need to be able to, um, if we keep applying purely spatial metaphors to our understanding of time and keep localizing ourselves in lit one little now at a time, you know, following, we lose the capacity to think in terms of duration and where things are going and what things are becoming. And so we get stuck in these kind of snapshots or cliches along the way. And we can't think of, you know, whereas what Gibbs are saying is that it is possible for a human being to think the becoming of something, to really see where things are going, or to see things in a kind of four-dimensional frame. And I, I do very deeply agree that that is the way that we will be able to deal with the biggest problems we're facing today, stuff like climate change. You can't go on with like the, the, the old solutions, the old ways of thinking don't seem to be able to uh, kind of grok, much less resolve or transform the situation in a positive way. But at the same time, when I was reading the book, and I've read a, a bit of Ever-Present Origin, I never finished it, um, I can't help but see in the model that linear thing. Because, I mean, it's like Phil was saying before, it's really hard. Like when he talks about Petrarch's, uh, this one this is a beautiful passage in Gebser. He's talking about the European polymath Petrarch. So he climbs a mountain in Switzerland or just near Italy anyways, because he can see Italy from the top. And he... Um, and his writings describes this experience as transformative because when he gets to the top of the mountain, he looks and he can see as far as the eye can see. And he gets this immediate sense of what Gebster later calls the perspectival. And that gives him an immediate feeling of panic. And Petrarch, all of a sudden, he starts to feel very nostalgic for Italy, which he can see in the distance. He wants to go back. And Gebster says, well, that's the kind of vertiginous feeling you get when you're looking into the abyss of a new way of being. And all of a sudden, he just wants to go back to the way things were, go back into the womb of the magical or the mythical or whatever. But so, so there is an intimation, at least in Gebster, of a historical unfolding. Because another thing that Gebster does is he looks at Picasso and he sees in Picasso's work an expression of the aperspectival, right? An expression of time concretized, time become tangible and visible to us. The invisible is becoming visible in the sense that we can see time doing its thing in Picasso's work. And you could argue in the work of other modernists, modernists like Paul Klee and some of the abstract uh, painters, etc., or James Joyce, for that matter, and Ulysses, very aperspectival book, right? You're taking a Greek myth and you're translating it into a single day in Ireland in 1919 or whatever it was. So Gebs for seeing the aperspectival expressing itself in this, but he doesn't find examples of the aperspectival in ancient Greece, which means that although each structure might have the other ones uh, in a latent form or an implicit form, 
the stages manifest themselves very clearly. And there, there is a kind of irreversible moment where the aperspectival reveals itself and hadn't been revealed before, which to me implies a kind of linear progression from one stage to another. And it's really hard to argue, I mean, maybe you can, to argue your way out of that kind of frame because it seems to be inevitable or essential to the model itself. Or another way of asking this simply is like, was there ever a Petrarch climbing any mountains in a shamanistic society and right. having that same experience. Yeah, I don't right. I don't know. I, I think, you know, again, it's not to discount the linear. Right. The mental is a as Gebser might say, a, a fundamental component of reality, the spatial world. So we can read it that way and it will remain that way and be present in, in the reading. I always say it this way. The mental is just simply removed from its totalitarian fix. It's no longer the dominant arbiter and interpreter of history. It's no longer where we're staying and interpreting history from as this locus point of superiority or, you know, um, well, okay, the, the mental and the spatial is higher, so it gets it and can now read all of history through itself. So I think in that sense... It's still there, but it's not as, I don't know, puffed up, you know, it's not as self-grandiose. It's not as uh, self-inflated as it was. And in terms of, yeah, in terms of, you know, okay, was there ever a Petrarch in in a a magical culture? I don't know. But but certainly space, and and in in this sense too, the the spatial perhaps in the magical has, has a much more kind of miniaturized feel to it. You know, it's almost as if, you know, you have like the dinosaurs and then the little mammals scurrying about. Well, the spatial is this kind of mechanism envel- enveloped in in the mythical and the magical, in perhaps tool making, in perhaps the way the hunters understood and, and mastered space, in you know throwing the spear and kind of understanding how to chase down animals on the plain in the Paleolithic. So space has this different complexity and enfolding with myth and magic, and just has a different kind of, again, right. organismic relationship. I was just thinking of um, the caves of Lasso and or Chauvet, actually, in the Cave of Forgotten Dreams, um, Werner Herzog's doc- documentary, where he's talking about, I didn't get a chance to see it in, in 3D, that film, but he's talking about how the, the cave artists of that time really mastered space. The rocks that they were painting these mammoths and, and the Paleolithic mammals on were very kind of, you know, multidimensional. So in order to make them appear to be as they appear in photographs, you really had to understand space in a kind of a masterful sense, even though they, the creatures themselves look very, you know, two-dimensional creatures. Um, but still, there's right. this mastery of space that's going on that has a different relationship with the magic and the mythic. So I don't think Epster would ever completely eliminate and remove that unfolding, but he would simply say, well, you really have to kind of look at what space means to the magic and you can see it there. It doesn't have a dominance, I guess. Um, The way I understand it and narrativize it is that there is a general unfolding, but again, the complexity really de-emphasizes that unfolding to the degree that, yes, it's important, but at the same time, there's many more aspects that we need to look at in order to really grok that structure of consciousness. Because if we're only going to get it from the mental, then we're going to start discounting 
in terms of, you know, what the magic and mythic offered, the reality that they had. So, you know, the mental has this trouble with kind of seeing itself as higher. And so if we're doing that with the story of unfolding, we're saying, okay, three-dimensional space in the mental structure is above the two-dimensional and one-dimensional space, then we kind of miss the almost the hyper object of the magic or the mythical. Those spaces are actually big on the inside if we go into that and listen to that. It's a whole other reality. And so I really try to frame them as unfolding, but different sort of plateaus of being, different plateaus of ontology that really flesh themselves out and then kind of fold back in and then we move into this other space, um, usually through some kind of crisis, civilizational or cultural crisis. Yeah, there's a moment in the book where you say, um, I'm quoting you here, this new style of nonlinear thought places us upon a challenging precipice of thought. How, How might we express emergence without adhering to developmental thinking? One approach would be, as Gebser suggests, to merely loosen it a bit, displaying some degree of perspectival freedom, simply becoming aware of our own tendency to spatialize reality as we study the structure of consciousness can help this process of mental dislodgement, for lack of a better phrase. I think that's strong because what it means is, and it's something I, I really agree with, is that you know, on this show, we often talk about retrieving the magical. That's one big part of our, of our thing that we, we keep going back to. There's a, an, an act of retrieval that needs to happen where a lot of things that we thought we'd done away with, with things we thought we, we'd completely completely discredited, actually have value to them. And we need to bring them back in order to get a better, fuller view of things. But that requires, first and foremost, not the, it's not about eliminating modern thinking or like completely eliminating spatial thinking or perspectival thinking and going back to the unperspectival. It's more of a, a way of, of seeing in a perspectival sense, perhaps, what it was that we lost and being able to integrate that into our way of thinking. I've always thought of it this way, is that when perspective came into painting, we lost the sense of field, which is what a magical culture has. It has a very strong sense of how a field of objects, if you put everything on a flat surface, you can see how they're all connected, right? And it took time for art criticism to start to see, to recover this iconographical approach of relating objects to one another synchronistically uh, because the z-axis made them feel so real so much like reality that they just looked like photos right they started to look just like snapshots of things we see in the world and therefore the sense of feel the sense of flattening things into a symbolic plane where you can see how they're connected was lost or somewhat lost you could describe that as a, a call to synthesis Right. You could say, well, we need to synthesize that old way of thinking or older way of thinking with this newer way of thinking in order to get some kind of synthesis, a new way of thinking. But in your book, you're very adamant that there is no dialectic, that even to think in terms of dialectical synthesis is to remain trapped in the perspectival sense, which banishes the other modes of thought. We really need an an integral way of doing this, which is not dialectical. So... um, I'm just wondering, because this is where where I struggle the most, not just in your book, but in any talk of the the new way of thinking, the integral or the, the new consciousness coming, is that it's very hard to describe what this new consciousness could be like without falling back into what consciousness is to us mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and I don't think there's ever really an easy answer for that. And, and I don't know if we'll, we'll get to that for many generations, to be honest. Um, the, the way he's describing it is that, you know, during these periods of restructuration, 
looking at the Renaissance as one and then now looking at our time as as another, where new forms of sense making are, are coming up and new forms of, of, of relating to the world are trying to be articulated. There's, there's a new language that has to emerge. And with the new language is this new ontology. And so he describes it as these kind of Janus faced periods of time in which the old is mixing with the new and it's kind of being mistaken for the new, but it's also kind of a vehicle for these new styles of, of being to actually to show up in the world in the first place. And so it's this kind of really messy um, disintegration integration period where we are experimenting with these things. And it's why I mentioned too in that, um, in a couple of those passages that, you know, Ken Wilber's work, for instance, is a really good example of someone who he, he's, he's really grokking onto this integral thing, but he's doing it in this, okay, I have a totalizing theory that will fit everything into it. And so it's a deeply, profoundly perspectival. At the same time, he's trying to work with these aperspectival um, notions. So I don't think we necessarily will figure it out, but but in terms of synthesis and cystasis, um, what Gebser is really saying here, and he's almost using, he uses this metaphor a few times in his writings, um, the way in which we begin to relate space to time. And he's being kind of easy on us here. He's saying, you know, we're going to spatialize time, we're going to spatialize these new modes of, of thinking and being in the world, and that's okay. As long as they're kind of open and porous, as long as they're sort of aware as we're, this is a placeholder for cystasis. We don't really know what cystasis could be, but it has to do more with intensity. It has to do more with the the immediate concretized awareness of the, the deep history of consciousness, the magic and the mythic, the irrational, without being submerged in it, somehow being able to be aware of the rational and then also the irrational. And for him, the irrational, though, it, we get a little closer to a more embodied experience of what that could be. And then we also get a little closer, just in Gebser's biographical sense and his writings as well, for what the aperspectival could be like to be a, a felt sense. And he gets into the mystical, actually, for that quite a lot. Um, he refers to Meister Eckhart. He was friends with DC Suzuki. He had a very interesting correspondence with Suzuki, where he was talking about Zen and this sort of leaping out of thinking into the irrational as this deeply embodied sense of presence. He leans towards these styles and modes of being to begin to describe what the aperspectival could be and the position of somebody in the integral world, what they would be like, how they would have, what their sensibility would be like. So we can kind of lean into that a little bit. So his answer is never to well, don't synthesize. It's just that synthesis is always kind of temporary. Right. It's a moment in this minute where things can come together abstractly and we can say, we need what we've lost behind in the history of consciousness, and we are what we are here. That's fine to say that. That's kind of a conceptual agreement that we grok as human beings because we can actually have a felt sense of the irrational or the magical um, and the waking rational. But how do we get beyond that or, or, or more than that or through that? I think that it requires this irrational, intensified sense of, of being with these things in a much more direct phenomenological way. You know, I feel like we could invoke a kind of negative dialectics of, say, Nagarjuna, the Indian Mahayana Buddhist philosopher, 
And an idea of negative dialectics is sort of uh, remade or reappeared in the thinking of Austin Spare. And there's a good essay by Lionel Snell called Spare Parts, which I think you can still find online that gets into this a, a little bit. But basically, you know, a way of, of breaking this down simply is saying you can start off with any two propositions. And, and let's say the perspectival and the unperspectival. Those are two propositions. And we're going to ask, how are we going to grok those together somehow. The obvious thing is to start with wanting to take sides. And that seems to be the characteristic mode of the perspectival thing. It's just sort of like my buffered sense of myself as an agent, as a, as a subject in a world of objects. I'm going to exert a kind of heroic mode of selfhood in manipulating and bringing all of those objects under my domination. And from that point of view, I'm pretty sure that my perspective, perspectival thinking, let's call that A, um, that's position A, is the right one. So A, not B. B, in this uh, schematic sense that I'm laying it out, is the, the mythic and the magical, the, the, uh, the non-perspectival. And then the classic move of the thinker whose fingers have been burnt by modernity is to say, yeah, this this modernity is bullshit. The subjecthood that we've cultivated modernity is bullshit. The perspectival self is bullshit. Give me some of that magic. Give me some of that mysticism, right? And then you're going to be like, okay, not A, B. I prefer B to A. And then at a certain point, you start saying, well, both of those things are limited because, you know, where you're in A, you're not with B. And where you're with B, you're not in A, so is there some way that you can kind of understand both of them? And you say like, okay, how about A plus B? That'd be the dialectic. That is kind of the dialectical mm -hmm. mode mm -hmm. that you seem to be wanting to avoid. And so in um, Nagarjuna's, uh, or for that matter, Austin Spare's fourfold negative dialectics, you start with A, an affirmation of A, then an affirmation of B, and then you have an affirmation of A plus B. But then the fourth, the final step, the hardest one to take is neither A nor B. And what Nagarjuna does in the verses of the middle way is he does this with very obvious, ordinary, everyday things like walking. And he wants you to start questioning and breaking down the idea of yourself as an agent moving through the world. And by the time you get to the fourth, uh, the fourth verse of e in, in each stanza, the fourth of each stage, um, he is asking you to contemplate yourself as an agent, neither walking nor not walking. And all of a sudden we are in the terrain of the mystical because we're no longer in a a space that kind of makes sense in the binary logical terms by which the human mind seems to work. And so I think it's quite apt that you bring up mysticism because ultimately, you know, when we're trying to encompass these different modes in a way that's not A, not B, not A plus B, it's something that is, I don't know, beyond any of these more settled positions, we're pushing ourselves outside of a realm of what is thinkable. And then perhaps some other faculty is needed. If we're talking about Meister Eckhart or Dogen, um, 
we're no longer talking about thought as the practice that gets you there. There has to be something else, maybe meditation, zazen, or you know, prayer, or something. But it becomes a more experiential mode. It becomes gnosis rather than knowledge. You see what I'm saying? Exactly, yeah. Uh, just to bring it back to these terms, actually, right at the beginning of Ever Present Origin, Gepser brings this up, and he says, I'm saying the perspectival in relation to the unperspectival, they're opposites. Because in immediate relation to the perspectival, this is unperspectival. Now, the aperspectival, he uses the, the prefix a, and I mentioned this in my book too, um, alpha privativum, as a liberation from, in the, in the Latin sense of the word, a freedom from. And so, in, in some sense, it's very similar to what you're saying with uh, this sort of negative dialectic where it's neither A nor B. Imagine what that is. And he's saying, you know, it's, it's neither the unperspectival nor the perspectival. Let's try to consider what that might be. And so this is where he does get into very kind of contemplative sorts of descriptions for what the aperspectival is. And he says, of course, that this is the only way to encounter this is through an intensified presence, that one must mm. intensify their sense yeah. of being present with things. And the qualities and descriptions he brings for the aperspectival end up saying, sounding like what a contemplative would say. Well, you know... It's neither the dark twilight of magic and mythic, nor the waking daylight of, of the mental and the perspectival, but it's this kind of clear, lucid, intensified presence, which seems to be behind or through, neither affirming nor negating either of those things, either of those dimensionalities. And it's sort of through those things that this, this underlying presence is, is able to kind of wear, he uses this word W-A-R-E, um, to wear through both the magic and the mythic. And this is what he says, you know, if we abandon the irrational, if we've been burned by modernity, our temptation is to kind of go, well, we need the mythic and et cetera. And that's true. It's integral to our being. But he says the danger of that, of course, is that we get these traditionalists who, who say, well, we need to reimmerse ourselves in myth. And that's how we're going to solve the problems by just resuscitating that. Um, and he's saying, well, that's not sufficient, you know, that the world and the crisis of the world is actually kind of calling out the whole being of the human being, the integrum, in order to, to leap forward right now in this sort of civilizational crisis. And the only thing that can do that is not abstract synthesis between the unperspectival and perspectival, but this intensified sense of presence. And Gebser had this himself in, he had an interesting experience towards, um, in the 1960s when he was traveling through Asia. He visited uh, Sarnath, which was the first teaching place of the Buddha. And he had this, what he describes as this very lucid, sober awakening experience. And he writes a letter to D.T. Suzuki and, he's, and Suzuki responds saying essentially, yeah, what you're describing, this kind of clear, irradiated, transparent light that's never gone away, that sounds like Satori. And so Gebser was really interested in this because early in his life, he sort of assumed the mystical was just this unperspectival stuff, right? That they're retreating from the perspectival world into this sort of pre-created ground of being. But when he had these experiences and he began to actually talk and read and, and relate to Eastern scholars, he began to realize that, well, actually, what I'm getting at here with the a-rational and the a-perspectival and the integral sounds very resonant with what they're talking about with Satori and Enlightenment, etc. So towards the end of his life, he began to be very open to that kind of language. Very but interesting. ever-present origin, it's the implicit language in the, in the book. He's saying, you know, 
okay, we're going to go deep into myth. We're going to really study it. But I want you as the reader to almost have this equanimity through it, to not be overcome by it. And okay, now we're going to go through the mental, but I want you to have this sort of equanimity in relation to it. And so there's this kind of spaciousness, not spatiality, but a spaciousness. He's always instructing the reader to cultivate in themselves as they study their own perception and study these structures. So as a teacher, and I understand that you are a teacher, how do you create a curriculum or, or something for a student to do that actually leads them to those greater intensities of presence? That's a difficult question. I don't think there's any way to... You can lead a horse to water, but I don't know if you can get them to actually... Um, for me, it's art. It's, it's always some kind of hmm. aesthetic experience that has to do it, hmm. um, you know, to, to really grok any of these structures because one of the things that Gebser says is not only cultivating this new awareness, but also kind of as we're saying, resuscitating this deep history of consciousness, I think the way to encounter it is through art. You know, uh, one of the things that we did this summer, it was just a fun class. We called it the Integral Summer Film Club. And so we went ahead and we watched Cave of Forgotten Dreams. We've watched Tarkovsky's Solaris. Um, Mm. Not so much going through all of the structures, but kind of meditating on our deep sense of past and the the limits of the rational and what, what takes place when we reach that, you know, that dark abyss that we have in Solaris. And then we're also watching a few other films, Blade Runner 2049 and, and Arrival um, and Interstellar. And so really, I just want people to encounter this, as, as to undergo it. And he says, Gebser says this about the mythical structure. You, you don't think it. It's not something you believe. Myth is something you actually have to undergo in order to know in an embodied sense. So I think this is actually a good thing to take away from myth, that we must undergo these sense perceptions through art very often uh, to help catalyze these kinds of experiences. And then, then Gebser's injunction to be present comes in when you undergo that, you know, you're really constantly studying your own experience and senses through this. And uh, again, it, it requires a kind of a contemplative attitude in order to really kind of get to where Gebser is talking about getting to. Um, in the book, you also align Gebser's a perspectival vision with certain movements and trends in contemporary philosophy today, um, namely object-oriented ontology, dark ecologies, the non-human turn in general. Could we talk about that a little bit? How is the, how are these new movements in philosophy expressing the aperspectival? Yeah, so I, actually, uh, I'll bring up, again, some art, and well, particularly the poet uh, Rilke for this, because um, Gebser's way into what he would articulate as a perspectival was Rilke's poetry. And he, he says, Rilke was somehow able to pass through the doorway and enter the mystery of things. The things are not opaque anymore. They become transparent. And in that opening, you know, it's a very similar description to what object-oriented ontology describes, this sort of transformation of the object is sort of bigger on the inside than the outside. And so this is this notion yeah. that things are actually, um, there's a kind of a dark abyss within things that 
can open up to us and that we can open up to. It doesn't mean we'll grok it in a rational sense, but we participate in it. And so Gepser sensed this attitude in Rilke and then also in what he started to look at both in, in the arts and the sciences of his time as this sort of thawing towards uh, releasing this perspectival gaze on things and beginning to participate in, in things, literally just things, objects, um, and their beingness. And then also the participate in that sort of mutual mystery. We have, you know, an interiority that is bigger on the inside than the outside as well. And so there's this kind of a sharing and an openness in, in its general attitude and style that Gepser talks about with Rilke um, that he begins to see happening um, well, we talked about Picasso, you know, he also was very interested in Paul Klee and so on. So I, when I was looking at object-oriented ontology, I was going, well, they're, we're, they're talking about how you s perceive things in an aperspectival world, how objects are actually these shy things, right? Um, so it, it just it just very much was resonant with Gepser's own language and, of course, his connection with Rilke and the sort of the openness of things. And I know Rilke's kind of often used as this beautiful, but, you know, he's on like Hallmark cards and things like that these days. But there's an uncanniness to that, you know, his whole thing about angels are terrifying and so on. So there's an intensity Agreed. in seeing objects and perceiving objects this way that uh, it's yeah. just a style. I, I don't know. It's just as a poetic attitude or a style that I see emerging in the humanities right now. And with the non, non-human turn, that, that's another aspect that, you know, Gepser has... Um, and I agree with him that the perspectival has been really good at being anthropocentric. You know, it's really good at, okay, I am the waking ego from this vantage point, can map out everything. And we, we've been doing this to the world and it's part of the problem with the crisis of late stage capitalism right now, where the world as this abstract thing that we've been perceiving doesn't actually exist like Bruno Latour has been saying recently in, uh, in Down to Earth, that world actually doesn't exist. It's sort of a, a mental abstraction. The Earth as the terrestrial can't give us this, like, you know, world of infinite industrial capital growth. It just doesn't exist. We're kind right. of falling off the hallucination from that. We're realizing it's an abstraction. We're coming back down to Earth. And so there's this turn away or turn beyond or after the perspectival and the anthropocentric that I think the non-human turn is very interested in, right? The personhood of objects and beings, the interiority and subjectivity of the non-human as this thing that's sort of creeping all around us. You guys talk about that on your show all the time with different folks you have on. It's kind of implicit. So I think to me anyway, that has a very integral in a Gepsarian sense, uh, flavor to it. And I, I just see that kind of emerging not only in the humanities, but also in art, in um, literature, like uh, Jeff Vandermeer's Weird Ecology. Um, I, I don't know if you guys have talked about that yet. I know you talked about the film, but that's another interesting turn with ecology too, and just sort of applying mm -hmm. that same sense and same philosophy intuitively through art and through um, horror. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I respond very much to what you say about uh, a kind of engagement with art as a way of encountering these these intensities. I have long been a kind of a at least intermittent practitioner of what I guess you could call the contemplative humanities. In some of the classes I teach, some of the classes I teach are 
kind of normal. Uh, they're just classes. But some of them, every now and then I will do kind of more experimental class that is, focuses on like process or I teach in a music school. So, you know, what musicians do every day, they practice, you know. And so thinking about practice and maybe a more encompassing sense, uh, like sl the way Slaughterdyke is, for example, is engaging with the idea of practice. So I devised a bunch of exercises, things that we do. And one of them was one day I brought all of my students over to the University Art Museum. And the thing I asked them to do was to choose a work of art. And for 50 minutes, they were to remain within sight of the artwork. You know, they didn't have to stand in one like absolutely fixed rigid position in front of it. They could sit down, move around, look at it from different vantage points, but had to maintain visual connection with this work of art for 50 minutes. It's just an exercise in long viewing. And uh, I was like, okay, so what, what happens when you do that? And I was actually unprepared for how powerful an experience that was for uh, maybe not all of the students in that particular class. I think some maybe found it a little boring, which is, of course, something that will happen if you engage in a contemplative practice. A lot of the time it's just really boring, but there was at least one or two people who actually told me that they were actually in tears just sitting in front of an artwork. Maybe they just um, picked the right one. Maybe. Well, one person, actually, Carrie O'Brien, who was right. on this show earlier, uh, was in that class. And she decided she was going to challenge herself with some kind of like crazy bit of video art where everything's really kinetic. And she said after about five minutes, she felt like she was going crazy. She realized she chose the wrong work of art. I don't know if she stuck with it, but I can't remember that. But, you know, it's, it's, it can be a, a tremendously powerful experience, simply taking an encounter with a work of art and crank up the intensity a little bit to encounter the the ipsaity of a work of art, the mm. the, the isness of this work of art. Quiddity. Um, yeah. Quiddity. There you go. Uh, yeah. the, 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 it's That's brilliant. And I think that uh, I, w I just wanted to throw in a couple of more thoughts in there because another thinker who thought along these lines is uh, Steiner, right? Rudolf Steiner would recommend or teach practices whereby one spends a long, like engages in long viewing, right? You just spend a long time with one object and see it reveal itself. And he, he was actually referring back to Goethe when he when he did this and Goethe developed this practice as well. In fact, it just reminds me that Goethe's theory of vision is very much a perspectival, I find. So yeah. again, the evidence of the non-linearity of some of these things. But yeah, so what we're getting at here is kind of, that's what the non-human is about in a way. It's like giving over your attention to something else. Because what happens when you spend a long time with a work of art is that eventually it's almost like the more attention you give something, the more it becomes subjectified, the more it becomes yeah, that's right. You can do that by looking at your radiator or at the front of a car. It becomes a face. It becomes a lot. It comes alive or staring at your own face in the mirror for too long. And you become very strange right, to yourself. <laughs> so it's true. Like you can actually become a kind of demon. So by looking at things, by bringing our attention to things, that in a way is is not a synthesis, but maybe hinting at something like cystasis, because you're employing a, a perspectival approach. You're looking at something. You're, you're clearly forming a kind of axis where the thing is opposed to you. 
But if you stay with that long enough, it starts to look at you back. It starts to look back. It starts to gaze back. And that's Nietzsche's thing, right? And then you start to transcend what we might call in a purely conceptual way, the human. You're transcending, you're getting out of the human. You're touching the non-human. And maybe that touching of the non-human is what Gebser is getting at, or at least one part of what he's, he means when he talks about the aperspectival. Yeah, well, Gebser has this um, uh, earlier book, he called it the, the Grammatical Mirror. And again, since he began with Rilke, he really began as a scholar of poetry. But one of the metaphors he uses is very, very Nietzschean in that sense, where he says, you know, the, the end of the perspectival world is this sort of situation where we're essentially just looking in the mirror at ourselves that, you know, that the, the human world is everything that has, um, it, it becomes everything. And for Gebser, he's saying, but we don't want just that. We want to be able to gaze into the mirror and to speak and to actually have a response and the response, not just be ourselves, even if it is through us, even if it is, uh, filtered through the anthropocentric world, there's something that's reaching through. That's the leap. That's the kind of, you know, in, in the more mystical sense of what he's saying about diaphaneity, right, the transparency of the integral, it's being able to reach out into that abyss of the other and actually get a handshake or get a wink back from the dark. And is that meeting, is that, is that connection, it's that leap beyond the wall of the perspectival self and the waking self where the other is discovered. And it doesn't mean we get what that other is in a rational sense, but there's a communion that takes place there, you know, and, and I think this is really what he's getting at here. And he gets into, you know, and this is another reason why I think he's not read by academics. He, he gets into the spiritual and the mystical that, you know, the, yeah. the, it's, it's, it's a sense that the visible and the invisible as these two general dimensions of, of, of reality, you know, what is hidden, it's not that it goes into the daylight. It's that there's something in us that actually has access to that. And that, that, yeah. opening between the visible and the invisible um, is beginning to assert itself somehow in consciousness and that the perspective will have this more porous boundary between the visible and the invisible, between the history of consciousness and these other forms in, uh, of, of the magic and the mythic, and then also the future and that time is, in, is somehow transparent to itself, that being is somehow transparent to itself and that human beings... At this point, in the unfolding of the history, if we go back to that linear sense, something about that integral dimensionality to reality is coming to the forefront and perhaps needs to in this moment where we face a, a, you know existential threat of extinction. So, yeah, there's the mystery to it. There's, there's a definite uh, spirituality to this that Gebser's speaking to. You know, there's something that I respond to very strongly in what you just said, which is the idea of like, there is, you didn't use the term faculty, and perhaps that's the wrong term for it, but a faculty, something in us that is always, it's always latent, it's always there. Uh, it can always be unfolded from some place of latency. And that is something that disturbs the idea that these things necessarily happen in some linear order. And this way of framing it actually really reminds me of uh, someone you've already name-checked, uh, Dogen. And more generally, the very similar, rather analogous conversations or debates that Buddhists have been having for time out of mind about the temporality of awakening. Okay, so to get back to, to Dogen, 
he lived and worked in the first half of the 13th century at a time that was collectively known by other Buddhists in Japan at the time as the age of degenerate law. And just as we have a kind of a linear narrative of civilizational development, um, we moderns, uh, so too did people who were promulgating this idea of the age of degenerate law. The only difference is that we as moderns, the, the shape of our narrative is always like things were worse and now they're and they keep getting better or maybe they get worse. But either way, we are always thinking in terms of the, a telos in the future, right? Everything is very future directed or teleological uh, and the standard modern narration of civilizational development. But the more traditionalist society is going to always kind of invert that and say that it's a degeneration from some age of heroes, some Arcadian age. And so this was the idea is like, well, it was in the age of the Buddha, it was possible to awaken. And then in the next stage, it was less possible, but still sometimes intermittently possible, just less harder, right? But then in the age of degenerate law, it is impossible to become awakened. And Pure Land Buddhism arises around this time out of this idea, because the idea is that then you want to awaken, uh, well, you can't do it here. But if you pray to Amida Buddha, I think that's right, then you'll be reborn in the pure land and there you can work on getting enlightened, right? But Dogen is, he, he dissents from this idea. He says, yeah, we live in a degenerate age, but it is always possible to wake up. He insisted that awakening is something that is not bound in time. And Dogen's metaphysics of time are very puzzling, very difficult to understand, much less talk about. But if awakening truly is beyond causes and conditions, then it can't be something you're waiting around for. It has to be free of linear time. And so we are always already a part of a perfect Buddhahood. And then the big question of his life was, well, then why do we need to practice? And eventually he came up with this idea of practice enlightenment, which is like when you sit down in Zazen, you and all sentient beings are perfectly enlightened, which doesn't necessarily make a ton of rational sense. But it does remind me a little bit of what we're talking about here, this idea that there is something that is always a possibility of the aperspectival, because the aperspectival is not bound to time. It's not embedded in time in that way. And so there is the sense in which, if I'm understanding you correctly, you know, that is something that exists always as a possibility for us, even if we don't exactly know what it is or where mm -hmm. we're going. Yeah. That's kind of what he means by ever-present origin, exactly. isn't it? Yes, that's exactly what he means by origin, an ever-present origin. And if you look at the first page of the book, Ever-Present Origin, he says, you know, Origin is this kind of pre-timeless thing, but it's not a beginning because that would be in time. And it's not an ending either, but it's somehow through time. It's, it's free of any linear sense of time, but it's also in another sense for time. It's what substantiates time. It's what substantiates things coming into being. And so 
we are always integral to origin. It's ever present. Uh, the aperspectival world is something we've always participated in, even in the unfolding of consciousness. And the relationship, and this is how we get back to the kind of the strange nonlinearity or alinearity. I don't know if you want to use A now for that, because it's not necessarily discounting linearity. The the Yeah, it's not A, not exactly. B. Exactly. It's it's always there. We're always participating. And he also used this other word, the itself, very kind of a Meister Eckhart kind of description and that the itself has played this role in the unfolding of consciousness, but it's, it's always present. All of the structures are always present in this integral reality. And at times that integrality can spring forth in us, that we can participate in it. So with Aurobindo, he has this kind of sense that the itself or origin uh, and the presence of origin has some kind of relationship with the human, that there's almost a poesis or a desire. I don't want to anthropomorphize it, origin, but it wants to realize itself in us, right? There's this kind of compulsion to realize these structures. And there's also a compulsion to allow them to fall apart, to create these crises. So new aspects of our being comes forward. So he's saying this is not something about human beings out of their own solitary volition, discovering and going forth and opening up these new expansions of consciousness. To some degree, it might be. But really, there's something deeper at work here that moves us into these and compels us into these new modes of being, like an artist would, right? Like the Renaissance artists were compelled to realize space. Well, you know, there's something about the nature of being and origin and presence in our consciousness that is almost compelling us to realize the whole. Like, it's not something we can avoid. It's something we already participate in. And so we're going to bear the burden of bringing it forth by simply being participating in it. And so, yeah, I think there is a connection with Dogen. <laughs> Coming back yeah. to that, um, especially Uji, the, the essay Uji, time being. I think Dogen has a very right. perspectival sense of time in, in that essay. I mean, just to muddy the waters even more, you could also associate it or make a connection with Thomas Aquinas's ideas on God, uh, or Meister Eckhart for that matter. But Thomas Aquinas' idea of God, it sounds a lot like what you just said about origin, right? God is not the temporal source of, of the world. It's not like God at the beginning, like in the beginning doesn't mean at the actual chronological beginning. It's this Ursprung. It's this force that's needed all the time to sustain things and that has somehow selected the human as a means of expression. Doesn't mean it hasn't selected other things as well, but it certainly has selected the human and we're human. So that's what matters to us at this point. But the idea is that the unfolding of time is the unfolding of God, right? That's what Aquinas' vision says. And so I don't know if this is helpful because I don't know if, if in a way we're just saying, oh, there's nothing singular about this, that, or the other theory, because all of these different theories or takes or interpretations are singular in their own way. But there is a kind of resonance between these um, these mystical movements, whether they're Gibserian or Catholic or uh, Zen Buddhist. And sometimes it's useful to stop talking about differences and look at the these deep affinities and similarities. Maybe there's something to that. Uh, and it's, it's funny because... Although Gebser locates the dawn of the perspectival, let's say, with Petrarch, he also talks about Plato as perspectival. And one could also easily find tons of examples or passages in Plato's work that are aperspectival. Uh, 
like in Timaeus, his vision of time is a perspectival. Um, also, when you start reading a, a, a dialogue of Plato, the first few pages are always kind of like Socrates chatting with his pals. And they sound like modern people. They sound like people who are fully individuated in the way that we would understand. They're fully human beings with their own concerns, and they have a perfectly perspectival way of looking at things. And so, in a way, it's like maybe the magic of Gebser doesn't so much hinge on whether or not the archaeological discoveries of the future will bear out what he said about this or that age, but more in terms of how this model applies to the individual, to each of us, and to how it reflects truths about how we move through the world and how and the modes that we must engage in or must enter into in order to apprehend the, the world in its fullness. You know, maybe you don't need the grand narrative to hold in order to get all the wisdom and truth that there is in there. Um, maybe he's expressing in a language that is of our time something that's been expressed before. You know, on the surface, you could see him as writing this grand narrative un of unfolding history. Um, but the experience of reading Gebser, um, and I always say, like, it, it is an experience in itself. He has a particular style. Um, even in his languaging and in his just page to page, there's always these examples of the other other dimensionalities and structures that are at play. And so there's it's almost in a kind of an ecology of consciousness where even when he's looking at ancient Greece, like you're saying, there's all of these other examples that are at work. Maybe those other these those other structures have a part to play in that moment. So there's this kind of interrelationality of the structures that he plays with from start to finish of the book through the whole history of consciousness. And so I don't know, I don't know if, if seeing him as a grand narrative guy ultimately really plays out even in the way he writes. Um, I think it's kind of right, just sort right. of, uh, it was certainly more of the style of his time in the 40s to write like that. But he was always trying to almost disrupt that without deconstructing it at the same time. He's going, okay, we're not going to create this perspectival synthesis. But nevertheless, there's a relation here. Nevertheless, there is a kind of an atmosphere that's at work in this few centuries of history where this thing is playing out. But at the same time, there's all these other interrelationships that are going on yeah. with all the other structures. He's very kind of, in that sense, you know, post postmodern. He hasn't gone through the deconstruction, but he still has that that sense of which the particulars flow into these larger holes that can't be capstoned by a synthesis. But nevertheless, the whole is there. It's something that can be felt. As we're saying, there's, there's affinities. And it's okay to kind of step back and, and not put a grand narrative on it and say, well, here's, here is the unfolding of history or here's the talos of history. He's never really saying that, except perhaps in a, in a poetic expression. So, I, I, yeah, I think there's something... I mean, that's just me having studied him very deeply and worked with his writing very intimately. I think there's a sense that he got the sensibility of where things were going with the deconstructive mode or move. And he was working even beyond that, you know, um, at least for as, as best as he could for writing in this in 1949. For instance, he says things like um, the integral as one of its characteristics would be the supersession of patriarchy that nation states are too perspectival and there's all these flows of ethnicities and cultures that need to be kind of taken into account. So there will be something post-national. We need to kind of get into an a-perspective, a way of, of living as a whole. So he says these things and I think, you know... Th 
it speaks to this intensity in which he he really tried to understand what this integral world could be and and um, how he deeply understood some of the problems of perspectival thinking that he experienced in his own time and that I think we're experiencing still today. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>